Good morning. My name is Claudia Bennett. Today we'll be reading from 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2. If you're using our Pew Bibles, it's on page 1093. I'll give you a moment to get there. Once you get there, say grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of Lord. Well, yes and amen. We are starting a new series today. And if it's your first time here, we just really love God's word. And one of my favorite things to do is just to camp out in books of the Bible and just kind of go verse by verse, break it down like Legos and see what God has to say. And I think there's a number of reasons um, why I favor that. Number one, um, it, it teaches us to study the Bible. Like, like, how do I study the Bible? Here's one of the things I never want to happen here. I never want you to come and like hear a sermon or have your Bible. And then while preaching's going on, you go, well, gosh, I could never see that in the Bible. Goodness, I could, I can, I, there's no way I can read the Bible. That's way too, dip, that's, that's bad preaching, okay? Good preaching is, well, that's right there in verse two, like, his point is, and there's the word right there, you should be able to kind of see those points. The second thing is this, it, it gets our church unified in a way like really none other. When, when we're studying through a book of the Bible and you're meeting at men's or women's and you're hanging out and you're like, man, God is really speaking to me. I've just been reading and rereading this book. And then on Sundays, it's like, wow, that's awesome. God is telling me that. And then the, the third thing is really this. Um, if we believe that God's word is sufficient that, that the creator of the cosmos wrote a book and he said, this book has my power, these are my words, then doing a series like this is just trusting God going, all right, whatever is in the next verse is what you have for us. I'm, I'm a big fan of clarity over creativity. I'm, I'm not that creative. I, I just really strive to be clear. And so whatever is in the next verse, we just trust that that's what God has for us. And then really the last thing is this, um, and it's a core conviction that we have at West we really believe that God's word is the final authority. 
that, that we have the history of the church. We can look at interpretations. We can make sure that we're following in line. Like, um, you know, an age-old saying, if it's a new doctrine, it's not a true doctrine, okay? The church has been around for a long time. There's been a lot of people read this book, but could you just humor me for just a second? If, do you have your Bible? Um, grab your Bible. Get your hand on your Bible. Get it. If you got a fake Bible, I'll let it slide. It's all right. It's okay, right? And here's what I want you to do. I just want you to hold it above your head, okay? I just want you to hold it above your head. There it is. Come on, raise those Bibles up. Oh, I love the ones with Bible covers. The, those people are really saved, okay, right, right? Hold it up, hold it up, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. Um, this is how we view God's Word. We are under the Word of God here at Westside. You can put it down now. You're not in the sermon anymore, okay? Um, we are under the Word of God. We are not over it as God's editors. We are not equal with it, thinking our personal interpretation. I feel like God means here, right? Those are dangerous words. We are under the word of God because the word of God is the will of God. We don't have to guess. We don't have to go, hmm, I wonder how God really wants me to live. He's revealed these things to us. Um, it reminds me back in the quarantine days. It's crazy to say that, right? I mean, to think about how was that all, three years ago and also only two months ago at the exact same time, right? Um, during the quarantine days, we were heavy into it. And I, like many of you, probably were doing projects around the house and finally getting to that stuff and doing those things. And the kids um, that Christmas had received a trampoline and so because of the cold weather and the bad weather and stuff like that we hadn't put it together and so there it was in the garage and I was like well I mean the entire world is shut down so I should probably put together this trampoline right so I go outside I'm starting to lay out the parts and I'm like oh I can kind of see how this works and um, I did what a lot of guys do I go to YouTube right um, go to YouTube you know and you're putting it together and it's good then I get to a point where I'm like, well, my bar isn't that way, <laughs> right? And so you kind of try to like force the bar physically to go the way it's supposed to go. And in your mind, you're like, this is not supposed to be happening, right? And then lo and behold, I realized, well, the bar's not this way because the 77 other pieces I put together are not supposed to be that way. And then I humbled myself and went to the instructions, right? And I'm looking at the instructions. And sure enough, it's like step one, they had you arrange the parts in a certain way, so like as you grab it and put it together, I'm, it was like they wrote an instruction manual for putting together a trampoline. And uh, the reason why I'm saying that is this. We just celebrated Easter. Jesus is risen and he is risen indeed. And by the way, uh, he's still risen this Sunday. And on Monday morning, he's, he's still risen. And what Jesus institutes before he ascends to sit at the right hand of the Father is his church, 
the church of Jesus Christ. And Westside is in a season of growth and God is doing some incredible things. But we are also in a season of stewardship. If you will, it's sort of like those trampoline parts. There's a lot of moving parts. God's doing a lot of incredible things. And oftentimes, where the church of Jesus fails is, oh, oh, I got a friend's cousin's brother's uncle. He kind of goes to a church. It's kind of like ours. It's kind of like ours. I'll just give them a call, and I'll see what they're doing, and then we'll do what they're doing, and then it'll work out there. And you know, I heard the church down the road. They were kind of doing this, and this kind of works out good. I, and what we do, we go to YouTube, and we start doing stuff. Um, and the reality is this. God has seen it fit not to just create his church. Well, listen, here's the big idea, and this is the big idea for the entire series. First and Second Timothy and Titus are the manual for managing ministry in the local church. 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus are letters written by the Apostle Paul. And the very purpose of the letters is how to manage, how to structure, how has God seen it fit that his church should function that is the purpose of these letters. And I believe that God is going to do some profound things through these series, through these letters. We're just going to go line by line and verse by verse. And we're going to ask ourselves, well, God very clearly says that the church is to function like this. And then our boards asking this question, are we functioning that way? Do, do we have that? Oftentimes the church creates terms and does things that we think have just been passed down and been passed down. But if we come to the book, the way that God has designed it, we see things different. So listen, this is just the way that we study uh, the Bible here at Westside. You can't just dive in. We like to say this, um, the Bible was not written to you. Okay? The Bible was not written to you. The Bible was written for you, but it was written to real people living in a real time, in a real place, with real issues. And so we have to dive into that and see what the context is. Then we begin to understand why these words are being used. So here we go. We're diving in. The background on 1 Timothy. Um, I don't bet you can't guess this. Uh, the author, it was read to you, the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul. If you want to know more about this guy, you can read in Acts chapter 9 about his conversion. Incredible testimony. Basically, um, Saul at the time is his name. He's an extremist persecutor of the church, literally going around knocking on doors, dragging Christians to court, making sure that they are executed by the government, and then going around to other houses and head-hunting Christians. He gets an appearance of the resurrected Jesus Christ, who literally knocks him off his high horse. He is struck blind, 
And Jesus says, why are you persecuting my church? And from that moment forward, many scholars, many theologians, and many historians believe outside in the New Testament, outside the person of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul is the most important historical figure in New Testament history. It's a game changer. He goes on to write a majority of the New Testament, performs miracles on command, but here's what he does. He rolls into a city and he sees that they haven't heard the good news that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. So he goes to the synagogue. He preaches, gets all the religious people super duper mad at him, man. All the religious people get mad at Paul, but the Gentiles and all of these people get radically saved. I mean, the towns burning their witchcraft books. They're shutting bars down and all this stuff because revival's taking place. And then here's what Paul does. He preaches the gospel. He stays there for a little bit and says, hey, this is how it's supposed to go. Do this, this. You need to be in this position of leadership. Do that. You guys got it? You got it? Good, because I'm out of here. And then he goes to the next city and he does the same thing. And he does it over and over and over. And here's what happens. Those churches start to have questions. They're like, well, what about this? And we haven't been told about this. And then Paul writes them letters. Philippians, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, this monument of a figure, is the writer and author of 1st Timothy. Uh, the second thing is this. When does Paul write this? Uh, most scholars believe around 62 to 63 A.D. Um, the reason why this is significant is when we look chronologically at the letters Paul writes, most historians believe that he writes um, 1st Timothy towards the end of his life. He writes Titus, then the last letter that the Apostle Paul pens, he is in a Roman jail cell. Not days, not weeks, but hours away from execution. Then he writes 2 Timothy. So we are getting Paul towards the end of his life. He has seen it all in the churches. He's dealt with opposition. He has been given revelations from God. Um, the third thing is this. Who is it written to? Man, this is a tough one. <laughs> Timothy. Yeah, that's great. You guys are awesome, right? It's written to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus. If you want to know more about Timothy, you can go to Acts chapter 16 and you find out about his mother and his grandmother and his father who was Greek and all of this stuff. The Apostle Paul, we're going to learn about their relationship. But Timothy is uh, pastoring in Ephesus. Ephesus is like the New York City of its day. I mean, it's a port city, so everybody travels in there. It was the theological and philosophical and educational epicenter of its day. Massive population, amphitheaters that hold 20, 30,000 people. Um, gladiator Roman games are happening there. One of the main Roman headquarters is there in Ephesus. And then there is Timothy, who's a younger pastor trying to pastor these people in an ever-changing culture. But why? Why does Paul write Timothy? This is massively important. We have to understand the context of what we're learning. 
And isn't it cool when you let Scripture interpret Scripture? We don't just have to, like, guess. Why is Paul writing this? Um, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Actually, turn there. Turn a few pages. Turn a few pages because I want you um, in your neighbor's Bible to underline it to make sure they're still awake, okay? 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. I want you to see it. It's right there in your Bible. Man, Paul, why are you writing Timothy? Verse 14. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that... Uh-oh, here we go. It's the reason. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In your Bible, just underline that, and then in the margin, write theme. Just put a star, purpose. Why is Paul writing to Timothy? Because he can't get to him because he's delayed. This dude's getting arrested more than Johnny Cash all the time, constantly. And so it's messing up his travel plans. And he says, I'm writing to you, so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Like, did you even know that that was in the Bible? When, when you read that and meditate on that, there's a ton. The household of God, that's what Paul calls the church. The pillar and buttress of truth a foundation, a pillar holds something up. The church stands for truth that when society is crumbling and decaying and nothing is black and white, the church of Jesus Christ stands as a pillar and buttress of truth. But when you look in this verse, there, there's expectations. There's a way in which the church is structured and designed. Now here it is, you ready? Put all the pieces together. Paul is writing to Timothy, a younger pastor, who, by the way, is probably in his mid-30s at this point. He's pastoring a growing church in a culture that is hostile to Christianity and constantly ever-changing. Uh, does it sound familiar? It sounds a little bit like Westside. And I believe what God is going to do in this series. Listen, I don't say this often, but when I do, I really mean it. I believe what God is going to do through the first and second Timothy and Titus will determine the future of our church. Are we structured in such a way that God will bless it? God can't bless disobedience. God's not going to bless us if we're not. It's like capacity. Some trucks can't pull a trailer because it doesn't have the proper engine. God is not going to send people. God is not going to do things in which a way that we are not ready to receive. And so I believe that what God has for us is going to be a game changer. And when we look at that verse and realize, wow, there's expectations, there's certain belief. Um, here's the sentence. What we believe about the church determines our behavior 
towards the church. That's what first uh, that's what the third Timothy uh, first Timothy chapter three passage is saying. What you believe about the church affects your behavior towards it. And by the way, um, I'm not new to this. I know that many of you in here probably come from a background of extreme church hurt. And um, I just want to let you know, I'm very sorry for what you had to go through. I don't know details. I don't know this, but I know this. Sometimes Christians can be the meanest people I know. I'm so sorry for that experience. I know this. Um, I know God uses all things for good. And what if, what if that season happened in your life and then God has you here and now to almost have a hunger inside of you to go, what's it really supposed to be like? What if this could be a season of healing for you? And a whole new future that God would have. Um, I believe that, that we actually have a lot of wrong beliefs about the church. I believe there's a lot of just unbiblical expectations about the church. Because how, what we believe about it affects how we behave towards it. So maybe here's just a few samples of just some wrong beliefs towards the church. The first one is this. The church as a business... <clears throat> Now, I know what some of you type A's are, and you're like, well, you take up an offering every week, don't you? <laughs> okay, be quiet, all right? We're probably not going to be friends. But anyway, right? Yes, there is a way in which it has to be structured and this, that, or the other. But if you approach it from a bottom line level, then giving money away and grace and mercy and all of that stuff never makes sense. It never makes sense. Um, how about the second one? The church as a country club, right? Church as a country club. This is just socially based. You know, I know it's good. And so every once in a while, you know, we'll go eat dinner um, at the country club. And so like once every couple months, we'll kind of go and it's like the social thing. And like, hey, how are, how are you? And so whenever you're like walking, you know, around the park or something, you can be like, oh, well, I'm a member at, right. And then it's really just social based. And it's to make sure that you have all those things in order. Um, the third thing is this, the church as a family heirloom, as an heirloom. Um, I'll never forget pastoring up in St. Louis, and like three quarters of our youth group would just disappear right before Easter. And I found out about confirmation and all of this stuff. And I mean, it was kids who had been radically saved and they were coming to our youth group and all of that stuff. And I was like, where are you guys going? What are you doing? They're like, oh, we got to do confirmation. I was like, you guys come to Southside and do all that? And here was the response. I'll never forget it. Yeah, yeah, I know. My, my grandma's Catholic. Okay. Like, praise God for granny. Like, that's awesome, right? But like, what... And then the more and more I'm in this, it's, well, you know, this, and um, can I just tell you something? God doesn't have any grandchildren. There, there's no such thing as God's grandchildren. It is the, the generation of each individual person. It's not the family heirloom that you pass down. 
Um, or how about this last one? The church, and this one's by far the most popular, as a fast food restaurant, right? Just come in, you know, like right before, come in and go get some coffee. Is there any more donuts left? Golly, that kid eats five donuts every Sunday. I try to get here, and then he's getting all the donuts. Then you come in, and you know, whatever it is. I mean, you think it's Burger King, and you're to have it your way, okay? It's, I love what Francis Chan says. Um, uh, somebody came up to him after church one Sunday, and they just said, Well, Pastor, I just do not appreciate the worship music this morning. I'm just not a fan of it. And Francis Chan looked at her dead in the eye and said, Well, that's awesome, because we weren't worshiping you. Okay? Like, it's something weird happens with church. Like, nobody walks into a bank and like, well, why aren't they doing what I say, right? It's a, it's a weird thing that happens. And I think it's because of, of the big vision. I think at the end of the day, if we were to do a 30,000-foot view and a poll and to say, what do you think church is supposed to be like. Um, I think the image of a school bus would come to your mind. Like, well, um, we've got the pastor... And, and he's driving, and he's going towards a vision. There's like, there's something, that I, we know there's something we're supposed to be doing, and he's driving us there. And so when we get on the bus, we just kind of sit, and then we're just sitting, and we're enjoying the ride, and, and the pastor's taking us to the vision. And that's where we're going. Every once in a while, we make stops, and we get new people on the bus. And, hey, this is great. I haven't seen you. I know, it's crazy. I wasn't going that way, but now I I am. And oh my God. And it's just, we're just riding along. There we go. I don't know of a more anti biblical view of the church than this image. Um, it's not like a school bus and one driver driving us to a vision. When you look at the New Testament, the church is like a row team. It's like a rowboat. You've got the coach who's keeping rhythm because the rowers can't be out of rhythm because then you're going to be fighting against yourself. And then everybody is rowing and they have a particular position that they're in. And, and they've been gifted in such a way that that position and their purpose in life and their hunger and their passion and it comes out. And yes, there is a destination, but the destination is not the main thing. It is who God is making us to be as this team and this unit. Um, if, if I were to say it a specific way, I would say it this way. We don't just want you sitting in a row with us. We want you to row with us. That's the church. And can I tell you something? Man, I love this nation. My, my granddaddy Bean had the purple heart. I mean, I just, I, I love this nation. But if there is one thing that keeps me up at night, it is the consumeristic, commercialized, American version of the church. And it is something that is so far 
from what we see in the pages of Scripture. And so what this series is, is, is the instruction manual. We go to the black and white and we see, but I think we need to start here. Like what is even a definition of the church, right? I mean, I think we've been taught this, that, or the other, but, but what does it actually mean? Well, by far the main word that is used in the New Testament for the two of you who care, it is the word ecclesia. It's what it looks like in the original language. That's the transliteration. Ecclesia. Ecclesia. It is not just a Bible word that was invented just for the Bible. It wasn't. Um, this word means an assembly or gathering of specific people. It was actually used of like Roman games or an assembly of Roman soldiers. They are called out. They are a specific group of people who are now gathered together. Listen, in every translation, you cannot find a scholar worth his salt. The word gathering is at the heart of the word ecclesia. But here's where it got confused here in the States. Is that we think people walked into the church today. And the reality is that the church walked into a building today. That's the difference. But the assembling is so key. That's why quarantine and all of that was so detrimental to the life of the church. That's why when you read the New Testament and it's forgive one another, love one another, all these commands that you can't do at home in isolation. It's not just a gathering, but it's no less than the gathering of people. So how about this for a working definition? This is going to work for our entire series, and it's this. The church is the gathering of God's people to give God glory through their God-given gifts. Bingo, Yahtzee, got it, right? That's the church. The church is the gathering of God's people God's people, a specific gathering to give God glory. And in this series, we're going to expand our terms like worship is not just singing. Goodness, great, what a limited view of worship. It is no less than that. It is so much more than that. It is a gathering to give God glory of who he is, his character, his nature, his praise, his honor, through their God-given gifts. We see it's the body and there's certain parts, and there's all of these things. And so in these two opening verses, we've got to start the letter somewhere. Um, I want to show you two things that are going to be kind of the main theme through the rest of the letter. The Bible's incredible. Not a single word is wasted. If First and Second Timothy and Titus are the manual for managing ministry in the local church, God has designed it in such a way that his people should function in his ordained way, then, then, then what's this all about? What can we be looking forward to in this? Well, the first thing is this, instruction. I mean, it's the instruction manual. We need instruction. Look at the verse. Um, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
whoa, okay? We got to stop a little bit here. Apostles were incredible guys, right? They were commissioned by the resurrected Jesus Christ. There were 12 of them. Now, there's some debate. I do not believe that the apostles, like in the New Testament, are functioning today. I do believe there's kind of like an office, and there's some characteristics. Oftentimes, they're entrepreneurs. They love to start things. They love to see people use their gifts, all of that stuff. But these guys did miracles on demand all the time. That, that was to establish their authority. So they would come into a town. They would preach, Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And people would go, uh-uh. And the Apostle Paul would go, oh yeah, well, you're blind for a long time. The guy would be like, I'm blind. And people would be like, yo, we need to listen to this guy. This guy's got miracles. And then they would preach the gospel. People would, it was incredible. These were specific guys for the establishing. Ephesians chapter 4, the verse that was read to us. They're the foundation of the church. Question. Um, how many foundations does your house have? One foundation, right? They, they were the foundation, Jesus being the cornerstone. So Paul, as an apostle of Christ Jesus, and then here it is, by command of God. Did you know that that is the only place in the entire New Testament that the apostle Paul says that? The word command is a military term. It means from like the highest up. I mean, he says, by command of God, our Savior of Christ Jesus, our hope. Now, what's Paul doing? Paul is establishing his authority with Timothy and the church there at Ephesus. It makes sense. When you walk into that doctor's office and you see all of those degrees and all of that stuff hanging on the wall, it means that I've gone to school for this. I'm adequate for this. I've been trained in this. This is what Paul's doing, but here's what's different. Oh, don't miss this. In the letter, the apostle Paul's going to give commands. He is going to give instruction. But what's he showing here? That he not only is going to um, be in a position of authority, he's also saying that he is under authority as well. Hey, listen, um, we're going to talk a lot about leadership in this series because I believe everybody's a leader. And especially if you're a business owner or, or at your workplace and you manage people, this is a profound principle that you need to know that is crucial to the church of Jesus Christ, and it's this. When it comes to leadership, you never put someone in authority who isn't under authority. Nope. And oftentimes people who are jockeying for a position of authority, but yet are not under any other authority in their life, are detrimental to the health of the church. This is true anywhere in life. You find me someone who is humble to position themselves under the authority of people, then I will show you somebody who is ready to be in a position of that. Because by the way, um, look at what Colossians chapter 1 verses 17 and 18 say. And he is before all things, talking about Jesus, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Hey, listen, do you know who the senior pastor of Westside Church is? 
not this guy, it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And he has seen it fit to be in the ultimate authority and to rule by his grace and by his word. So we're going to see instruction. That's important. But what we see in the church is that nobody's ever in authority unless they can be under authority. But then the second thing is really the heart of it all. It's not just instruction. It's multiplication. Multiplication. Look at what he says in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Man, that is intimate. That is a, that is a very intimate thing to write. Um, we see the Apostle Paul do this, but what is my true child? A child, my, my offspring. Timothy, you are my offspring. Um, one of the things that we have to know is the mission of the church is to make disciples who make disciples. That's the point of the church. Jesus said in Matthew 28, hey, I'm raised from the dead. I did it. Easter. That's why we're doing a whole series on the church. You're like, why are we doing a series on the church after Easter? Because what did Jesus say after he rose from the dead? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. It's not gather a crowd. It's not make converts. And it's not just make disciples. It's make disciples who make disciples. Um, how is this done? Well, very quickly, we see Timothy through the rest of the letters. My fellow worker. Then later on, 1 Corinthians, my son whom I love. Then lastly, my true child of the faith. You see the progression here. And what is the progression? It's this. Discipleship demands relationship. That's it. That's it. That's why, hey, hey, look up here. Don't miss this. Why do you think we do grill and chill? Because I can tell you something right now. I'm a busy man, okay, right? You're busy. We don't, we're not just like adding stuff to the calendar. It's to create intersections where people would grow and deepen in the relationships with one another. Um, many of us have walked a journey. And, and discipleship really looks like this. I've showed you this before. But everybody in this room is somewhere on this triangle. We start out as distracted, not very interested in the gospel, God, anything like that. Then some things start to happen. I would venture to say that the props are getting knocked out from underneath you. And now you're like, oh man, uh, maybe praying's good. I don't know. And then you move to um, attracted, like, yeah, maybe there is. What's going on? Wow. Then there's a conversion. Then you say, I do believe with the best faith that I have, you pass through the waters of baptism. Baptism, you do all of these things. And then from believer, this is where church fails. They believe it's only the first three. We got to get people far away, get them attracted, and get them converted. Yes and amen. But then after a believer, you start to be discipled, which means to be a follower of Jesus, to learn the way of Christ. 
Then, as you're being discipled, you realize, I need to gather some other people around me. And, oh, my coworker. And, yeah, and then you start investing and pouring in people as well. Hey, this is what worked in our marriage. And, hey, here's what was going on in this. Then the toughest by far is to not just be a disciple maker, but then move up again and be a reproducing disciple maker. Listen, this is how a healthy church functions. And if you only stay on the bottom and don't have leaders reproducing leaders, you have an anemic church is what happens. So here's the equation. Relationship plus discipleship, that equals leadership. And too long in church, we've just been like, wow. You have an outgoing personality. You should work with the youth. Wow, you love tennis shoes and rap music. You should be around kids, right? We don't train people. We don't do it. Listen, relationship plus discipleship equals leadership. I'll close with this. You got to know this. Everyone is leading someone. I don't care if you're sitting there going, well, no, no, you've got family. Everybody in this room is leading someone. And here's what else I know. All leaders need a leader. All leaders need a leader. And what I'm praying desperately for is that God would do something in our church and that you identified where you were on that triangle and now you're like, man, I've been coming here five, five years, four years and I literally walk in, get a cup of coffee, say hi to people and sit down. I haven't done, I don't serve, I love these people, this is my home church. Listen, Moving up that triangle is what I believe God's will for your life is. That's what it is to follow Jesus. And I believe many of us are like Lieutenant George DeLong. Uh, The year was 1879. And this guy is getting ready to go to the North Pole on the USS Jeanette. And this is what the boat looked like. He was getting ready to go to the North Pole and claim it for Jesus. He loved, I mean, he was excited. He was so ready to do this. He believed it was God's call to go and do that. He also believed that all other maps were wrong and that there was a passageway through the North Pole ice cap. He didn't think it was one solid piece. He thought that you could go through it and there was a river passageway. So he searched out as long as he could to find the guy that made him the map. The guy said, I believe that too. And he made a map. And midway through the journey, the boat gets crushed with ice. And he writes this in his journal. We now must replace our wrong-headed ideas with a reckoning of the way the Arctic truly is. He ended up dying of starvation in 1881. When I ran across that and read that, I thought, that is the big C capital church. When are we finally going to release and say... 
our wrong-headed ideas of how all of this is supposed to be. We need to come to a reckoning and say that God has designed it in such a way that we should flourish. So in closing, I've got three questions for you, and it's this. The first one is, who are you leading right now? Can I just be honest with you? Can I be honest with you right now? We are in a season in Westside where everybody is seeking somebody else to lead them. And I'm asking you, who are you leading? Who are you leading? Just, this is my life, come over and hang out, let's pray together. Um, the second question is this, who is leading you? All leaders need a leader. And then the last question is very simply this. Um, are my expectations of church from the wrong map? What if, what if today that's just the word for you? That God, in this series, I'm laying my expectations down and I'm open to what you would have for me. Father God, we come before you today grateful for your word, grateful that you have given us the way in which your people God's people gathered together to glorify God by their God-given gifts. You have not left us as orphans, but you have spoken. You have showed us the way. God, I pray today a light bulb comes on for somebody. And they go, my goodness, I've been complaining and walking around saying, who's going to lead me? And I need this. And the reality is, I've got margin in my life to invite somebody in. I can have coffee. I can pray with somebody. God, I pray today that you would begin a good work through this series. And that five years from now, ten years from now, Westside would look back and go, wow. When we humbled ourselves under the very word of God and looked at how this thing was supposed to be structured, it forever changed the life of our church. That's our prayer. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Westside, would you stand to your feet?